course, that was the passage that John the Baptist used as his marching orders. And we're going to read about John. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. We are going to um, put a little pause in our series going through the Gospel of Mark. We'll pick that up in January. Um, And yet, at the same time, I had mentioned uh, early on that we were jumping over John the Baptist in the in the Gospel of Mark, so we can look at him during Advent. So here's the fulfillment of that promise. Uh, We're going to look at John the Baptist, but we're not going to look at him in Mark, because Mark has a little shorter story, but there's a lot more in Luke, and so we're going to use uh, the Gospel of Luke. This also ties in with our morning sermon uh, series. It's the second of the voices of Advent. We talked, we've been talking about what, are, what voices have come out during Advent and Christmas, and what do they tell us about, about uh, this Advent waiting? What do they tell us about our relationship with God? What do they tell us about the coming of Jesus? And so we started with the prophets this morning, and particularly Isaiah. And now we turn to John, who in, in many ways is kind of a bridge. If you will, John is sort of the last of the Old Testament prophets, coming about 400 years later after the last prophecy had been heard. But he's also the beginning of the the new kingdom that is coming in Jesus Christ as the one who would prepare the way, as the the new Elijah. And so John is a bridge for us. And so this this evening, I want to have us listen to the voice of John the Baptist. This morning, we, we heard in the voice of Isaiah the keynote of hope. And now in John, we hear the call to repent. The call to repent. So let's look at Luke 3. We'll read the first 20 verses. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas, And Caiaphas, now I just want to stop here a moment, because Luke likes to do this. He does this in chapter 2, where he sets the birth of Jesus uh, in the time of Herod the Great, but also, more importantly, in the time of Caesar Augustus. Now, this is fast-forwarding about 30 years or so, and now we're in a different era, but Luke once again tells us where we are, and he, he tells us some of the most important people of the day. First of all, Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, And then the governor of Judea, who was Pontius Pilate, and the three kings that took over from their father Herod as tetrarchs, uh, Herod Antipas, Phyllis, and Licinius, and then the two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas. These were all bigwigs. These were the bigwigs of the day. And so uh, Luke is just laying out, hey, look at all of these important people. And the word of God comes to none of them. The word of God, we go on to read, came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all all people will see God's salvation. 
John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God can, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. We'll conclude a reading at that point. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, as you worked through John the Baptist as a prophet, as you worked through Luke and inspired him to write these words, we now pray that you would work through us. First, inspiration of this word and what each of us needs to hear for our lives. And then also, the willingness and the ability to be like John, to prepare the way for the Lord for some people. We pray this all in the name of the one whom we prophesy, the name of the one whom we introduce people to, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 31 years ago this month, the Banner, for those of you who don't know, our denominational magazine, had an interesting cover. It, it showed four men, three of them well-dressed and the fourth looking like a caveman. And the headline above the picture, which I cut off so this picture could be bigger, was, Would the CRC Hire John the Baptist? It's an interesting question. John dressed funny. No three-piece suit or wingtip shoes for him. He had more of a jeans and work boot style. He had a strange diet, locusts and honey. He had no tact in speaking. John was always in your face. And when he was, it probably, he probably didn't smell too good. Frederick Beekner, in his book Peculiar Treasures, writes about John. John the Baptist didn't fool around. He lived in the wilderness around the Dead Sea. He subsisted on a starvation diet, and so did his disciples. He wore clothes that even the rummage sale people wouldn't have handled. 
When he preached, it was fire and brimstone every time. The kingdom was coming all right, he said. But if you thought it was going to be a pink tea, you better think again. If you didn't shape up, God would give you the axe like an elm with a blight or toss you into an incinerator like what's left over after you've lambasted the good out of the wheat. He said that being a Jew wouldn't get you any more points than being a hottentot. And one of his favorite ways of addressing his congregation was as a snake pit. Your only hope, he said, was to clean up your life as if your life depended on it, which it did, and get baptized in a hurry as a sign that you had. Some people thought he was Elijah come back from the grave, and some others thought he was the Messiah. But John would have had none of either. I'm the one yelling myself blue in, the wil- blue in the face in the wilderness, he said, quoting Isaiah. I'm the one trying to knock some sense into your heads. Now the CRC might not hire John the Baptist as a pastor, but John had something important to say. So let's listen again to the voice of John the Baptist this Advent, as it reminds us how to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. Not only the first coming, but also the second coming. First, John's is a voice calling. The voice of a prophet, and therefore really God, the voice of God, had gone unheard for some 400 years. Luke lists seven important people in the world and in Israel, but the voice of God doesn't come to any of them. It comes to John, who's enlisted as a prophet, a voice of God. He's given a mandate to preach a baptism of repentance, repentance being a sorrow for sin and a determination to live a holy life. That wasn't very popular, telling people that they were sinners and to prepare for forgiveness. Where would the forgiveness come from? John tells him that it's going to come from the Messiah who is coming soon. And so John preaches sin so that the Messiah can preach grace. Now in the Old Testament, God had promised that someday there would be a new prophet, a new Elijah. This is actually a statue on Mount Carmel of Elijah slaughtering the prophets of Baal. But at the very end, the very last prophecy, 400 years before, in the book of Malachi, we read in the last two chapters the prophecy of the forerunner of the Messiah, who's called the new Elijah. In Malachi 3.1, we read, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come says the Lord Almighty. And then the very last two verses of the Old Testament, before we turn the page to meet John the Baptist in the New Testament, says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And so John shows up. On the heels of this prophecy, 400 years before, John shows up in the first pages of the New Testament at the start of many of the Gospels as the new Elijah. Now, when John shows up, however, as we saw from that picture from the banner, he's not making a fashion statement, but he was addressed appropriately for the job. He simply assumed the style and dress of Elijah and many of the other Old Testament prophets. 
And like Elijah, he protested against the godlessness and self-serving materialism of his day. And like Elijah, and in fact Israel itself, John came from the desert. The desert was the place where you go to, to find reliance and trust on God. And especially people would go there in preparation for ministry. Of course, Jesus spent 40 days and 40 nights in the desert before he came out to begin his ministry. John's job description also has something to say about the desert. It's spelled out in Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5, which we find here in Luke 3, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John was to be a voice calling to prepare the way for the Lord. Now the background of this is that in biblical times, when, a, when you heard that the king was coming to your town, the Department of Transportation trucks would get busy filling in the potholes and leveling the bumps, making sure that the, the king had a smooth ride and a good first impression of your town. John says, send out the trucks because the king is coming. In a similar way, we prepare for the Lord by realizing our lives are filled with empty potholes in need of filling and by in need of a Savior and by leveling out the bumps of our pride. Preparing for the king, John likens to a construction project to improve his entry into our hearts. Is that something we've been doing in our lives? That's one of the things that sometimes people use the Advent season to do. Prepare themselves once again that Jesus can be part of their lives. So John was a voice calling, but he was also a voice warning. How did John voice the need for preparation? By preaching. But instead of beginning his sermons, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ... He began his sermons, sons and daughters of snakes. Not a very endearing style. And instead of three points in a poem, his sermons consisted of two points. Repent, produce. Repent, produce. Now John hangs out by the Jordan River near the desert. Always a good place to baptize. But more than that, it fits with John's call to repent. The biblical concept of repentance was deeply rooted in the desert. It was there that Israel had its first baptism, if you will, through the waters of the Red Sea, although it was a dry baptism there. And then separated from slavery to Egypt and preparing to enter the promised land. In a sense, John is calling now for a second exodus. A second, uh, come being saved a second time, if you will, but this time spiritually. And again, to do that, they must come to the wilderness. In fact, most archaeologists believe that John actually was on the opposite side of the Jordan River, outside of Israel, where Israel would have come to cross over into the land the first time. And so it's a baptism also through the Jordan River. They were to come 
to the other side and enter the Jordan River, be baptized, and then come out back into the promised land. It was uh, to acknowledge their separation from sinful living and into a new, renewed covenant with God, which will result in their living in an eternal promised land. But there was a cultural problem with this for first century Jews. They were used to baptism, proselyte baptism for Gentile converts. And the baptism signified the washing away of their pagan defilement. But now John is calling for baptism for Jews. For Jews. Putting them on a par with unclean Gentiles. And when some of them claimed exemption that Abraham was their father, no, we're Jews of good standing. We can trace, trace our lines all the way back to Abraham. John reminds them that God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Only adopted children. We are not saved by family faith, by the faith of our, our forefathers and foremothers, but only through a personal relationship with Jesus the Messiah. But it was not just a call to repent, it was also a call to produce. Some, some of the Jews still misunderstood, and they, they apparently saw John's baptism as sort of a miracle cure. So they were flocking to the river just in case. Warren Wearsby writes, John pictured the self-righteous sinners as snakes that slithered out of the grass because fire was coming. And so for them, this baptism was simply fire insurance. But John basically says the act of baptism is no more assurance of salvation than being a child of Abraham. Baptism of repentance must be accompanied by moral living, by producing fruit. Examples of which he gives to the specific groups as they ask him, what shall we do? Now it's easy for us today to say, well, we're repentant. Maybe even to feel it. But John says, give me visible proof. Show me your changed lives. As we look in the mirror, do we find that proof in our lives? Or do we say, well, no, I'm a church member. I came from a Christian family. I've been baptized. John says, don't show me your church membership. Show me your fruit. That's how to prepare for the Messiah. And in that way, he sounded much like the Messiah himself, who also often talked about the need for fruit. But then thirdly, John was also a voice introducing. John did his job creating expectant mood for Messiah, and he did it so well that some thought maybe he was the Messiah. John says, no, he's much bigger than I. In a couple of ways. First, in his power, John says, He's more powerful than I. I'm not even unworthy to untie his sandals. A task that not even the lowest of the low servants would perform. That was one thing they didn't have to do. Some people said, I don't do windows. They said, I don't do sandals. But John says, I'm not even qualified to do that compared to him. Nor was his baptism comparable comparable, really, to the baptism of Messiah. John's water baptism was external and symbolic. 
Messiah's spirit baptism will be internal and real. John says, compared to him, we're just playing baptism. When, John, when he baptizes, John says, you don't get wet with water, but you get soaked with the Holy Spirit. Have some of us received water baptism, but not really the baptism of the Holy Spirit? That's the baptism we truly need. Unless Christ permeates our life with the Holy Spirit, we're not his. Even if we've been baptized, whether we've been sprinkled, immersed, or dry cleaned, only the baptism of the Holy Spirit really counts. The other option, John says, is to be baptized with fire. Which shows us the second way Messiah is bigger. He's not, it's not only in his power, but in his authority. For Jesus, the Messiah, is the judge. And as judge, one day, he will separate the wheat from the chaff. One to the barn, the other to the fire pit. Undoubtedly, many of the Jews of John's day thought they were the wheat. But John says, oh, hold on, not so fast. Wheat produces. Are you producing fruit? If you're not producing your chaff, which will ultimately be burned. Do we automatically assume, because we're sitting here tonight, that we're wheat? Are we producing the fruit of repentance in our lives? These are important questions, John says, because Messiah is coming again, a second time. And this message is not just for people out there, but it's for us as well. Are we productive disciples? Are we living for our Messiah? And so as we begin this Advent season, early on in the season, the start of, of the month of December, are we preparing the way for Jesus to come into our hearts? Don't ask as we begin this month, am I ready for Christmas? But am I ready for Christ's second coming? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for sending John ahead of you to, to call us call us into relationship with you, into repentance if that's what's needed. And we pray that each of us would be able to examine our hearts to know where we are at in relationship with you. And if we need to heed the call to repentance, help us do so. If we can glory in the fact that we are yours, then help us to enjoy this season with great joy, but also call others into relationship with you as well. We lift this all up in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's respond by singing a Christmas carol, Angels from the Realms of Glory, and you'll, you'll hear some of, the, some of the things that we've been talking about this morning and this evening, uh, getting prepared for, for Jesus, um, that kind of comes out in this song. We're going to sing the first four stanzas, and we're going to leave the last one for our doxology this evening. So would you stand as we sing the first four stanzas, Angels from the Realms of Glory. <laughs> 